This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome for Physical Activity Research Podcast. And today we have a guest, Eero Haapala, from the Faculty of Sport and Health Sciences from University of Jyväskylä. Welcome. Thank you and thanks for the invitation. Yeah, my, my pleasure. So, what are your research interests? Uh, my main research interests, they concern children, adolescents and their brain health and more recently vascular function and structure. All right, so quite quite different, the vascular things and the, and the brain things. So are yeah, they... In the first place, I, I, they seem to be quite distant. But I think they are quite closely related. You look more closely, mm. like you have to have some kind of blood flow to your brain and it's somehow related to your vascular function and vascular health. Yeah, yeah. That, I think that, that's the one reason I ended up to research both of these different topics. All right. And how, how long have you been studying the arteries and blood flow now? Mm, uh, I think it's something three or four years. All right. Uh, I think we haven't met in a while because last no. time I saw you, it was more about the yeah. brain and cognition. So yeah. But uh, as a more regular face now, it's been one year or two. Yeah. But started four years ago, I think. Yeah, and and you started your your research with the cognition studies, or how how was your your PhD and and the first studies you did. Yeah, I started with uh, academic performance, mostly reading and math skills, mm. and then moved to more cognition, reasoning skills, and more abstract, abstract things. Yeah, as in yeah. functions, not not directly related to learning or they are related to learning, but not that we can measure like reading or calculating. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if, if we start from the basics, I don't know much about cognition. So why is there a link that if I move my legs sometimes, which is physical activity, it affects my brain function? Why is that and how, how is that? Well, <laughs> we can start really from the past or just the basic mechanism. Uh, we, we can start from the past, maybe. That's, that's okay, an interesting from... start, yeah. From 10,000 years ago, yeah. the hunter-gatherer populations, of course, there's a need for physical activity. You had to collect your food, hunt, mm. and after you are hunting, you had to find your way back home, mm. and you had to have really nice cognitive skills to find back home, but also for hunting and finding food. Mm. So there's a, that kind of evolutionary link that physical activity and cognitive and brain development are related. All right. And then, you know that physical activity levels has declined quite a lot yes. from these days. Yeah. Now it's possible to sit all day and have just 
only really low on the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah I, I think I have read that while you're eating, your memory works better because it's it's been in evolution, it's mm-hmm. been beneficial to remember how did you actually catch the mm-hmm. animal or found the food. So uh, and then then you said about physical activity that you went to to do something and to find back home. Is there how do they is this like a just an idea or is there some proof? Of, of this this link between physical activity and remembering back back to or, or have, have you read is there any how do they came up with this I think we don't have a direct evidence of course yeah. I'm not that old yeah but well this is not really strong support but when ancient populations started to travel around the globe also the brain size increased. That has been confirmed in mm. anthropologist studies. Yeah, it's not a direct evidence that the physical activity was the key, but they are linked. Mm. That once you started to travel, also your brain started to grow. Mm. All right. And so now, now, now we kind of made the basic that yeah. why is it linked, and then how how is it linked? I I don't know much. Like how how is it? Uh, message it to the brain and, and how, how does this work? What do we know about these things? Well, why and how? It's, mm. Well, always when you move, something happens in your brain, mm. of course, because the brain is controlling movements. Yeah. That's the first link, but it's not the only link, because that's only the neural link. Yeah. But every time you start to move at a certain intensity, more intense exercise, of course, produce more physiological adaptations and responses. But there's an increase in several neural, well, how to say that, broad factors. Mm. So the exercise induce increase in that kind of brain health enhancing factors. Mm. It's not directly related to brain, but it's more overall response to exercise. Mm. So you have the neural response, and then you have how would you call it, hormonic response, mm-hmm. or some kind of endocrinological yeah. response. So yeah. a brain-derived neurotrophic factor, I think, is the most precious yeah. factor. Yeah, and this has been related to new increasing newborn cells and their survival. Yeah, yeah. And is it is it known? Is it kind of response in the motor for the to the motor activity in the brain, or or is the muscle actually needed there, or does it does the loop go all the way to the muscle? How I think that if the muscles are needed, or the brain function itself is not enough to make that kind of metabolic mm, all right. action as well. Yeah. That's that's very interesting. And is there uh, like there's usually this kind of sensitive periods for children to develop flexibility and and other other capabilities? Uh, is is there a research finding showing difference between adults and and children in this this regard of the beneficial effect of physical activity for for brain function? Yes, there's in fact quite yeah. nice evidence that. Young children, pre-pubertal children, 
they are more responsible to exercise than adolescents or young adults. Mm. But then again, the older adults, the exercise has quite large effects on cognition and brain function and brain structure. Right. Probably because children, their brains are developing, and on the other hand, in older adults, the brain functions and brain health is declining. So there's a developing and declining. These are the periods when you need some exercise and physical activity. Yeah, very, very interesting. And you've been also studying the dietary factors. How, how does this diet come to play into this? Well, it's always interesting because I'm an exercise scientist and started just nutrition. Mm. And, well, and in our studies it has been surprising that nutrition has more effect than physical activity, actually, in children. But our population has been quite physically active, so perhaps there's more to improve in nutrition. But basically, when nutrition is needed, your nervous system needs building blocks, mm. something that they are built on, like fatty acids, proteins, mm. carbohydrates, all are needed. And we have found that this is actually quite lame. I'm not supporting any really nice diet that you should follow, mm. but just basic nutritional recommendations, yeah. high fiber, vegetables, yeah. fruit and berries, fish, yeah. and that kind of diet has been related to better cognition in children, adolescents, older adults, yeah. So yeah. really basic things. Yeah, so I, I can see the link from the fruits and the vitamins mm. to brain health, but how does the, do you have any, any guess why is the fiber important, or high fiber food? Yeah, it may be related to gut function, the gut microbiome, Maybe something to, to do with it because there's a connection between all that and brain. Mm. It's quite novel, a real research, and I think we are not yet there that we can definitely say that what's happening. Yeah, it's it's actually really really interesting yeah. the gut microbiome and how it seems to affect so many things of yeah. our our functioning. But it's it's sometimes really confusing it to understand the links that how why why are these things. Mm things linked together. So so dietary fiber is linked to gut microbiome. Yeah, it, that makes makes sense. So was there any other uh, the fruits, fibers and what was the well, fish probably got because of fatty acids. Yeah. DHA and EPA. Yeah. And acids, they are well neurons, they need them. Yeah. Uh, and they form so and you did this study this study with the Finnish children yes yeah and and was the how big were the effects with the effects of diet uh, to to brain function in your studies no cognition cognition yeah. yeah we haven't measured all the well reported brain function yet mm. but effects um, I, I can't say that they were meaningful mm. but of course really large because Always when children are growing and getting older, also their cognitive functions are getting better, although they are not doing anything special. Mm. And do you think it was more about that some really have deficiencies in, for example, in fatty acids? Or did it seem that they didn't have deficiencies, but it seemed that you get more 
you, you have better cognition or what do you think? Well, in our children, they didn't really have any deficiencies, but their nutrition quality was not optimal. Yeah. They quite often get too much saturated fatty acids, too much sugar, and the basic things that are quite often a problem yeah. in the population level. But we have shown that those factors really improved in our intervention, and probably that has some benefits to cognition as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, at, least, at least it seems to be yeah. like that. Yeah, and once again, the, the basic dietary recommendations seem to, yeah, so even, boring, even for a cognition, yeah, seems so to boring, be this. Yeah, yeah. It, it should have been that eat McDonald's and your brain will be doing better than other things, maybe not, but still still went the, went the same same way yeah and you've been also you you stayed in your research interest fitness and fatness so what, yeah. what do you have to say about this yeah well that's always something that i'm and probably get some feedback yeah you can't say that yeah. but like i said before we started that i think we have done multiple research wrong. Mm. You have used um, measures of fitness that are not really measures of fitness, but a combined measures of functional capacity and body fat content, like dividing peak VO2 by body mass. Mm. It's not really a good measure. And yeah. I was just writing a paper showing that if we really do our controlling of body size well, it's not related to insulin resistance and that physical activity is more important than fitness and that's something that has been argued that it can be that way that fitness is more important than physical activity mm. so what do you think is a good good measure of fitness then how, how should fitness be defined or, or measured well, I, I mean, we can measure it many ways. Mm-hmm. In that paper I was writing, we had a maximal psychoelectrometer test and we didn't collect respiratory gases, so we mm-hmm. had just maximal power output. Mm-hmm. But we controlled it for body size using a lean mass, which is physiologically most appropriate because your muscles are making movement, they mm-hmm. are metabolically active during the movement mm. and they also increase your venous return so that's effect on your stroke volume and it's, it is the most important factor in your fitness mm. and, and we also yeah. did some elementary modeling that we really took account the body size mm. so you can really now compare individuals with different sizes mm. And and you said that physical activity is more important than fitness. Why why is that? Well, because at the measure of fitness we used, it's, it is not now related to body fat content. Mm-hmm. And we know that increased in body fatness is related to insulin resistance. And if we don't have a measure of fitness, mm-hmm. that is not related to body fat. There should not be that much confounding. So, fitness, as a measure we use it, it's not really insulin resistant. And why physical activity mm. is related 
or is more strongly related. It's, I think that's a quite nice physiological rationale for that, because of course when you are moving, your muscles need more glucose, and the glucose disposal is increasing, mm. and with increasing intensity also the muscle mechanisms. Okay, let's get back to that in a moment and hear a few words from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate and vigorous intensity. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. The Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description. So is, is fatness the most important thing for the insulin resistance? Was that what you said? Or? Yeah, yeah, unfortunately that's the case, at yeah. least in children. Yeah. It is possible that when you get older, fitness has some, some role. In that young age, yeah, it seems not that important. And is it independent of of fitness? Like if, if you actually, let's say, you are a sumo wrestler, <laughs> you you're really fit, but you you have high fat content. Do you do you think it would still be the same, or how would it go? I think it's the same. If you control fitness for the body size, mm. appropriately. Yeah, I think that fitness has not that big role. All right. But if you are a sumo wrestler and you are physically active, yeah, I think that makes the difference. Mm. I think we can compare sumo wrestler who's quite huge and then there's a couch potato who mm. can be really lazy and sedentary and still quite huge. I think yeah. there's differences in insulin resistance because the number one is active. Yeah, yeah. And then we, we moved to from the brain cognition, I see, to uh, insulin resistance. Is this what you are doing at the, at the moment mainly, or what's your main <laughs> main research thing at, at the moment? My, my main, uh, that's fine. Uh, I just submitted one paper on physical activity and academic performance. Now we're working on insulin resistance, but also with some physical activity measurements. Yeah. Things, so... I think I can just concentrate on one thing and always yeah. doing something else and trying to find some interesting. Yeah. And we also have some liver, fatty liver markers going on. Yeah. And but these all are from the same data set or um, well the health outcomes are from the same data set, but yeah, the topic of sport and health sciences we have that physical acting measurement study. They're mm. trying to define what is sedentary behavior in children. Mm. How can we define physical activity intensity in children? Because that's one thing we are not really. Yeah. Really, yeah. We don't know much about that. Yeah. So what what do you plan to do with the physical activity assessment with children? Do you plan to develop some new new methods, or, or what's your plan? Well, not new methods, maybe. I think it's more of a business. 
maybe but maybe some uh, theoretical or practical things how we can define different physical activity intensities and improve the accuracy mm-hmm. in the population level when you try to assess for example vigorous physical activity yeah it's really hard in the methods we are using now yeah why, why, why is that well the basic problem in the known calibration studies that they have decided before that that's sedentary and that moderate mm. and that that's vigorous activity but yeah. they haven't really defined that why it is yeah it's just that feels that it is but that's not true and we have now we have the metabolic changes yeah. uh, measured respiratory gases we have EMG mm. heart rate and axillometers so we basically know what's happening in the body in different exercise intensities and yeah what we have done for example now we have unheard vigorous intensity to ventilatory threshold so this change in metabolic profile mm-hmm. to a certain point and that's something that no one has done before yeah it, it is quite simple division like divides a slide rather than yeah. vigorous and it's it's kind of it's from the energy expenditure mm-hmm perspective which is only one one perspective of defining defining activity i was just talking with timo timo randalainen and we were talking about defining those same things with mm-hmm. the elderly and with the elderly it might be that their maximum is lower than the threshold of vigorous activity so basically they can never some individuals can never reach vigorous intensity activity yeah, right. so then they have only two categories mm-hmm. of light and moderate and so so Timo was using that he's he's dividing it like mm-hmm. to much smaller categories kind of histogram view of it and I, I think that that could probably be useful we have data that that is continuous mm-hmm. and then we divide it just to few blocks of course it's easier to report but maybe maybe reporting the whole whole histogram or whole continue would be would be useful so you said uh, muscle activity ventilatory thresholds are you are you measuring these in your your projects yeah we have a lab protocol we have measured almost everything you can measure mm. in children yeah ethically yeah yeah much more yeah, yeah. than really nice data and collected that has already in a reporting phase yeah trying to find out what to do with the data yeah yeah i'm, I'm, I'm thinking like usually children they take quite a short sprints mm-hmm. so it might be like neuromuscularly quite demanding quite intense but if you do it just for five seconds it's probably not metabolically very demanding if you don't have enough time to actually get the heart rate and respiration going. Have you, have you looked at this at all? Not, not actually because, yeah. well, the real-life validity of all that kind of calibration studies is a bit limited because we often use four minutes, five minute periods we measure mm. as long as they reach the steady state. Yeah. And like you said, the children quite often move really fast and then they rest. Yeah. And we can't really measure that kind of periods. Yeah, yeah. 
And and if we go a little bit back to the cognition, have you have you found that certain type of activity is more beneficial or is it is it the same for light or moderate or vigorous activity? Now we go to a whole discussion spectrum because a different yeah. type and then we have intensities. Yeah. Well, the types it's probably that in children if you include some kind of motor challenge balancing or playing ball games, it's more effective mm. than just walking around or running around the track. Yeah. But there's a research that has shown that also the running and walking is effective. But yeah. The sizes are probably larger, they are more well interesting and so so actually actually like do I understand correctly that if you're doing physical activity that is challenging your motor system yeah, and brain as well. Yeah, you will be better in maths, for example. The effects are larger, a bit larger. Alright, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So there's kind of cross cross function in yeah. the, in in a way. But there's also some data showing that if you have a really demanding physical activities. They may decrease your performance shortly afterwards, mm. but that's not the most common finding. Yeah, yeah. And how how long do you think this this will last? This uh, decreased performance, like, have you has anyone measured it? I think there's not good data showing how la- how long it really lasts. Mm. Probably not too long. Yeah, maybe a few minutes. Yeah, ten minutes. And, and that, I think that must be really demanding. Yeah, a really demanding motor task that yeah. kind of takes takes away something. Yeah. And do you think this is same for the elderly people? It, it's quite the same. Yeah. Most often they have studied just aerobic exercise, and it has proven to be quite effective. Also for the brain structure, but at least one study has published also really simple motor activities without any metabolic demand mm. and it has almost the same effects and aerobic exercise. Yeah. And actually if you think like the physical activity of quite a large chunk of adult populations, mm. it's it's usually just walking. Yeah. Which is quite quite not very demanding no. from motor perspective. So should the recommendations be a little bit different that it would be more more skillful things that we we encourage people to do. Yeah, I, I think we can even emphasize more mm. balanced skills and especially for children, not yeah. only giving the amount of moderate vigorous physical activity, but really showing that motor skills but also muscle strength might be important. Yeah. In yeah. Yeah. So I think we can emphasize motor skills and motor learning more in elderly and in children. Yeah. And why not in middle-aged adults as well? Yeah. Because the degrees in motor skills probably start quite early. Yeah. And not having that kind of exercise. Yeah. Yeah. This goes a little bit in the different different end of end of the continuum, but I, I personally have sometimes felt that if I do, for example, really, really hard high intensity interval training, that my cognitive function has, has declined <laughs> for maybe two hours, then 
I go after that, I go to a restaurant and I try to order like which which pizza I want. And I cannot make make the decision. It's really difficult. But I don't know. Maybe it's the lack of oxygen in the brain after the high intensity. Yeah, there's evidence really that if you have a really high intensity, your blood flow to brain decreases or plateaus. Yeah. There's some some individuals, not maybe all. Yeah. But there's also evidence that the high intensity training has the largest effects, but not immediately, but sometimes after the exercise. Yeah. So it is kind of super compensation that your brain function goes goes yeah. bad for a moment yeah. and then, then it goes. But the most safe way is just to have a moderate intensity yeah. physical activity. Yeah. Because it has no it's mostly beneficial and the negative effects are quite small. Yeah, yeah. No, very, very interesting. Mm, I I have something, some idea in my mind, but I think we, we lost it for forever. Uh, yeah, and, and your other studies now, what you've been doing some years is, is about arteries. What, what's, what's interesting with arteries? What's interesting? I think everything is interesting with yeah. arteries. Yeah. But basically, still, the heart diseases are the most common cause of mortality and morbidity in adults. And Heart diseases, have, heart diseases have their origin in childhood, so I think it's quite important to find out how we can prevent underpopulation burden mm. since childhood. Yeah, and and there's many people probably think arteries just as a as a way to transport the blood. What's what are the adaptations in arteries related to physical activity, diet, and and so on? What's what's important? to measure from the arteries. And of course the function, how well they can change with the demand. If your muscles need more blood, they have to delay it so the more blood can be transported to exercising muscles. And also it's the same with the brain. Mm. If your brain functions are increased, brain activity increased, your brain needs more oxygen, more nutrients, you need to delay your arteries that you can transport with nutrients. Mm. Yeah, now I remember the thought that I lost. It was about the blood flow and, and sedentary behavior in the brain. There, there was some studies showing now that after was it six hours of sitting, mm. you start to get reduced blood flow in the brain. And I, I think it's quite interesting that why why is, is there a link between sedentary behavior and blood flow? And do you think it's the same? Is it in the same continuum that the physical activity improves improves uh, brain function? Uh, yeah, I can see it that way. Yeah, but it was really the six hours of sitting reduced the cerebral blood flow, and physical activity prevented yeah the decline. Yeah, in adults. And actually, I, I think they didn't have six hours of sitting in children, more mm. four hours, and in children, that kind of effect was not found. All right. Probably yeah. because they are more adapted, adapted to yeah. keep their brain function going on, and adults probably have more time to just ruin their arteries and mm. function is not working at all. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So 
let's hear a few words from our sponsors and get back to that right after. This podcast is sponsored by Thibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. So what kind of project do you have upcoming about, about arteries here, here in the vascular? Well, we have now uh, menopausal women. We are measuring their fitness and arterial stiffness. Mm. And later... We have devices we can measure microvascular function and endothelial function more accurately. Yeah. So we are trying to find out which is more important for vascular health, which is fitness or physical activity, sedentary time, or maybe nutrition mm. or body composition. Yeah. yeah. And then we try to figure out if increasing physical activity can even more improve the vascular functions. Yeah, yeah. How how long has been this increased interest for the vascular function? Like because you know everybody knows about athletes' heart mm-hmm. and the heart gets gets bigger and stronger when you do do exercise and if you're an athlete. But but the talk about veins and arteries there hasn't been much. Like when I when I was studying, for example, I I don't even remember anyone any book mentioning about it. So how, how long there's been research on this? I think the research has been there for decades, but mm. I think it has been increased a lot within the last 10 years. Yeah. And now there's some recommendations from, I think, American Heart Associations. Yeah. Association that, that arterial stiffness measurements can be applied to a daily practice, practice medical setting All right. just to increase the predictive power of future cardiovascular events. All right, that's interesting. And do you think this increased interest is because better research methods or just uh, somebody started started paying attention to it? I think it's because of both. Yeah. We have not, not quite nice, easy, non-invasive methods to measure stiffness and endothelial function mm. and of course we have more research showing that other health function and structure are independent factors yes. that predict future cardiovascular events and yeah. the mortality yeah so you said that there's better methods to measure arterial stiffness do you want to give like a short introduction how is it how is it done <laughs> how it's done uh, the most I think the most easiest method we are using here is like a blood pressure monitor. Yeah. It's the cuff on your upper arm and yeah. it works really the same way yeah. in the blood pressure monitor, but the algorithm is a bit different and it's, it calculates the pulse wave when your heart ejects the blood and then the reflecting wave that comes from the reflocation of your heart. Mm. So the basic function is really easy, it's just a tight the cuff on your patients yeah. your arm and then press the button start. Alright. Just check that the data was good. Yeah. 
that's I think that's the most easy way yeah. to do it. And and um, what, what what price range is this kind of device I think like when will it be like home use device? <laughs> well, the most most devices are less than ten thousand euros. Yeah. So in the clinical use, I think that's not really that much. Yeah. And the device we have, it was something like four or five thousand euros. All right. Yeah. So not for the home use yet, maybe. Yet, yeah. Yeah. But could be maybe in the future. Yeah. Many things get get quite much cheaper with the improvement in technology. So that was how to measure arterial stiffness, and then you mentioned some other variable to. Rushing, yeah. rushing to yeah. to your arteries. But there's a hypoxia. Yeah. And it's so you need to close. You again have a cuff. Yeah. You use to close the artery, and then you have different. Either you can use ultrasound to measure the dilatation. Yeah. Or then you have a different laser Doppler. Yeah. For example, and yeah. you use to measure the blood blood flow. Yeah, and which way does it go? More delays, it's it's better it's or better. Not worse. Yeah, so you need to have quite a bit of dilation there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, any any other things you would like to like to discuss? Wow, well, <laughs> of course the mechanics, how physical activity affects on brain. That's yeah. again one. Line can continue. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think most people are interested in why and how and is its direct effect on. Mm. Yeah, because here in US, also some evidence that sleep is important and some other things are also important. So we can continue to different levels. Yeah. So why? Because we cannot know that physical activity may improve your brain structure, like the hippocampus, the memory center of your brain. Mm. There's some evidence that with physical activity, the size of the hippocampus increases, yeah. and also it's related to improved memory functions. Mm. Yeah. That's important, that although you have increased size, it may not always relate to increased performance. Yeah, yeah. And in that case, it is. Yeah. And how much is it like? Are the the memory performance and then other cognitive tests? Are, how well they are linked? That if if your memory function improves, are usually the math scores better, or how how is the interplay? But there's some intercorrelations. So if you have executive functions inhibition, so you can efficiently concentrate on tasks on hand. Mm. So. You need some working memory and perhaps some long-term memory so you can efficiently handle the task. So they are related, mm. partly separated. Yeah. But still there's some link between them. Yeah. And especially if you have that, that kind of exercise that includes some kind of cognitive aspect. Yeah. It probably has the effect on 
that only aspect you are practicing. If you have to memorize something during your activity, it probably has larger effects on your memory and not just concentration. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of memory practice actually the physical activity at the mm-hmm. at the same time. I'm I'm thinking like I was playing playing baseball for for twenty years when I was younger and and there's quite a lot of mm-hmm. thinking involved in the game. You you kind of especially in some positions you are thinking like what are, what is mm-hmm. the opponent thinking, what is what is the the coach thinking, and then. What they are thinking of that I'm thinking that I will do, and then it's it's quite complex complex things you're going going in your mind. So I think it was it was good that I played yeah. baseball. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, no, very very interesting. Also in this this podcast, we try to kind of share tips and and things that usually doesn't get mentioned in the scientific publications, mm-hmm. but you have learned. Learned important and relevant things, whether it's about how to do measurement, how to apply funding or something. Would you would you have anything to share that you have learned in your research career? Well, yeah, not, not maybe related to funding. Yeah, not being that efficient in that regard. Well, perhaps with uh, measurement in children. Yeah, and in research in general. You have to be quite kind and yeah. friendly. Yeah. Because otherwise your working atmosphere yeah. with your colleagues and with the children yeah. won't won't work really yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. So how how do you usually manage when it's for example if you're doing physical activity assessments, how do you get the children to wear the devices, not to lose them, not to break them. Is there any any tricks to do that? Yeah, usually said that if you break it, we just pay it. <laughs> because we all have kind of like football in there then. Yeah. But if I go to karate or judo, yeah. Yeah. well, if it gets broken, that's our right. Don't yeah. worry about it. Yeah. So children are really interested. What, what happens if I lost it or if I broke it. Yeah. So I think it's, it's the problem. Yeah. And that that's why they are sometimes forgot to put it on because they have been afraid. Been afraid. Yeah. yeah. It's a problem, but it's just take it easy. It's not your fault. It's yeah. It gets broken. And yeah. Yeah. I also read that the, it was the coherence was better when you add a Superman sticker mm-hmm. to your accelerometer. Yeah, it's kind of super device. And yeah. Although wrist run, accelerometer. Oh, you had kind of super watch. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah. And one of my colleagues was saying that he usually takes like three to four children mm-hmm. at the same time when he's explaining like what they are doing and when he's giving the devices because then he he gets like it's a small group enough that they kind of feel that they need to behave right. but then they are not alone that they don't get too nervous so he, he was finding that three to four is, is the perfect perfect amount for that and how is the how do you do the cognitive test what's how how they are best performed so we have had individual tests using either computers or paper and pencil tests yeah and well, it's sometimes really hard. I have used the computer-based test for adolescents. Yeah, it's of course quite easy. Just 
they have a bunch to do when they do it, but the younger children, yeah, it's more introduction, everything, and you have to do that and that. Mm -hmm. You just have to be patient. Yeah, yeah. And on practical and personal experience about attaching active pals, yeah, on the thigh with that tape, yeah. Uh, well, attaching is okay, yeah, but taking it off. <laughs> You have to really be gentle. Yeah, you're the bad person. Then yeah. maybe do some water. Yeah. And telling that it may hurt a little bit. Not yeah. Too much. You get a sticker afterwards. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. And then are you using the tegaderm or which? Yeah. Or corresponding. Yeah. Yeah. So it sticks quite well. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes in our school measurements, we had just. Cut it out from under the ectoderm film, yeah. and they had to get away back home. Yeah, when when they can, can go to shower or bath, so it gets a little bit easier. So they have to cut it a hole. Yeah, so you take yeah. just the device off and leave the leave the tape yeah. that the adults need to be yeah. the bad person to pull it pull it off. Yeah, how how well the device has usually stayed with, with children when you take it on the thigh? It, have you had problems with staying for seven days or how, how well it works? I think I had a problem with one or two children. Yeah. They more often like to have it for a long time yeah. and take it away. All right. Because I think they realize that it's really tight attached. Ah, yeah. And so. Yeah. You can't just give them thanks. Yeah, yeah. So that's when you start yeah. even just taking the device off and leaving, yeah. the, leaving the tape on. Of course, some children feel some hugging or it's getting a little bit annoying. Of mm. course, when you're sweating, yeah. stitchy. Yeah, yeah. And do you feel that it's it's better actually that it's on the thigh and and the children don't see it, it's just kind of there and they can forget it than if it's on the wrist that they, they kind of all the time notice wearing something. I mean, they forget it if it's in the tie or wrist or anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It takes that one day or with some children one hour to forget it. Yeah. We have used a hip burn and then the thigh burn. Yeah. And I trust more the thigh burn. Yeah, yeah. Because quite often children forgot to put the hip worm device on mm. and they take off during night or during shower. Yeah, yeah. It stays for a longer time. So usually you use you use the tie worn device in, in your studies. Yeah. yeah. All right. I think it's been it's been really interesting discussions and actually a lot of new things for me as I, I wasn't too I didn't know too much about cognition and, and the link with physical activity so thank you for for being a guest in this podcast this podcast is sponsored by Fibian get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research the Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description.
Thank you for listening to the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast.